try something a little different here. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, this morning we're, we'll be continuing in Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 29. Um, and we're going to see what we have here. Now just a brief reminder of where we've been as far as context, what we've seen on uh, the first few verses of chapter 6, we have seen Jesus return to Nazareth and be rejected by his hometown, or at least the town that he was raised in. We saw in verses 7 to 13 that taking this rejection, he takes the 12 and sends them out on a mission to continue to expand his ministry area, that this augmented time of ministry of sending out the 12 to continue to preach uh, the good news of the kingdom and of Christ, of the Messiah being there. But now we come and we begin in verse 14 and Mark gives us this interlude, this, this breakup. This seems kind of disjointed to fit this here. Where we spend verses 14 to 29 talking about King Herod and John the Baptist in the middle of seeing Jesus send the 12 out. So we're going to take a time to look at this and kind of see what uh, we, we can glean from here about Herod and about John the Baptist. And this is only one of, of two sections in the book of Mark that don't focus on Christ specifically. Here and early in chapter one, when he gives us an account of John the Baptist's ministry. So let's start here by looking at uh, verses 14 through 16. Uh, now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So in verses 14 to 16, we see Herod's conviction. In verses 14 to 16, we see Herod's conviction. Now we need to start with an understanding of which Herod this passage is referencing. This is Herod Antipas. Now he doesn't pick up the name Antipas until a little bit later, like something like 6 AD or something. He doesn't pick up the name Antipas until later in his uh, time as governing. His father was Herod the Great, who was referenced in Matthew chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Now, you remember Matthew 2 the, with the account of the Magi coming from the east. They go into Jerusalem and they talk to Herod saying, hey, we're here to see the king, born, the king of the Jews just born. And Herod didn't know what they were talking about. And Herod the Great is the one who uh, instituted the massacre of the, of the innocents and in trying to kill the Christ child. Herod the Great was a client king over Judea under Rome from 40 to 4 B.C. But after his death, his kingdom was divided. Herod Antipas uh, referred to by his official title here, uh, received part of that kingdom. His official title is Tetrarch. He's referred to that um, in Matthew chapter 14 and in Luke 3 and Luke 9. 
but he preferred to refer to himself as king, and that is for, this is how Mark refers to him. Uh, as Tetrarchy, again, was a client king under Rome, but he served over Galilee and Perea. He served from 4 BC until 39 AD. Now, he was one of four sons, or at least one of three sons of Herod the Great that was governing part of the Judean area. Now, Mark uses the term king for him here, for Antipas, and this is likely to connect some things for his Roman readers. The term king was used kind of loosely by the Romans in referring to rulers in the east. But Herod Antipas likened himself to king and preferred that title. Though none of Herod the Great's sons ever had the power or prestige that he did, they were just as immoral and barbaric. Mark opens this section here by noting that Herod had heard of Jesus. It says Jesus' name and ministry were spreading. This was aided by the work of the Twelve in the previous, previous few verses that we discussed. The news of the supernatural events surrounding Jesus brought out Herod's guilty conscience. The news Herod would hear was centered around Jesus because the twelve rightly gave their master the exalted position in their preaching and healing. Whether that was in the name of Jesus, we heal, or that um, Jesus sends, sends us to heal. However that was worded, they were giving him the exalted position. They weren't healing of their own, of their own authority. And we looked at that last week. Now, Herod would say when he heard of these wonders that being done in the name of Jesus or by Jesus, he would say that John the Baptist is risen from the dead. This is why all these supernatural occurrences are happening. Now, even though John's ministry was not marked by miracles, it seems, it seems expected that if one returned from the dead, there would be supernatural events w along with it, that he, they would bring back supernatural powers. And this seems to be Herod's thinking as he tries to explain these supernatural events. But Herod's voice is not the only one Verse 15 tells us that there were other possibilities being offered. Others said, it is Elijah. Now, this option has been brought up when, whenever this discussion circled. Some would say that these miracles were the work of Elijah. Now, this opinion, this option goes back to the, that old expectation that Elijah himself will return preceding the Messiah. This goes back to the prophecy found in Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Still others suggest that it was a prophet. Now, in the, the, the King James and New King James reads this part of the suggestion as of the prophet. 
You'll remember back to John chapter 1 when we were studying that in December, when the Sanhedrin sent a group to investigate and interview John the Baptist. They, one of the questions they asked him was, well, are you the prophets? This goes back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses promised the people that God would raise up a prophet like himself in the midst of the people. This prophet's identity had been debated among the Jews as some thought it would be the Messiah. Some thought it, would, it was Jeremiah. Uh, but we see later in, through Peter in Acts chapter 3 and, and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 that they identify Christ as this prophet. Most translations render this part of the verse a little bit differently so that it reads that Whoever this Jesus was, was like a prophet of old. Uh, You'll see in verse 15, others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Other translations will reword that so it would be, uh, it's a prophet like the prophets of old. And reword it more to that. And in right or wrong, that's how that, that works out. Verse 16, though, gives us Herod's response to whenever he heard the suggestion of Elijah or a prophet like those other prophets. And it was one out of fear and guilt and conviction. Herod's statements seem to be an emphatic, self-tortured confession of the death of John. He says here, This is John whom I beheaded. We don't really see it here in in the English, but it is very emphatic. This is John whom I myself beheaded. He himself has been raised from the dead. The, the, The emphasis is there in the Greek language. We don't see it really brought out here in the English, but it is a very emphatic statement. Herod was convinced that John had been raised and was now at work again. Perhaps part of Herod's conviction and fear was that Jesus and the twelve preached a similar message as John, a message of repentance, a message calling out sin and calling for repentance. Now here we're at the end of of 16, going into verse 17. Mark includes a flashback, if you will, to retell the account of John's death. Cue the ripple effect as we flash back to what has been. So let's look, starting in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So in verses 17 to 20, we see, we're just going to see Herod and John. Herod and John in verses 17 to 20. So we're first told that Herod had ordered John's arrest. 
Now, John was the forerunner of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, and he preached a message of repentance to righteousness to prepare the nation for the Messiah. He was not bashful about calling Herod to repentance for his gross and public sins any more than he was calling any average Jew to repentance, let alone the Pharisees and any of the religious leaders. John's message was an indictment against Herod's immoral and corrupt lifestyle. Verse 17 goes on to say that John was arrested by Herod because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Before we get uh, into this marriage, let's, let me say that the Herodian dynasty is a web of immorality and divorce that would rival many of the celebrity and non-celebrity divorces we see today. The Herodian family is fit for an HBO drama series. It is so intertwined with immorality, violence, and political drama. So let's identify some of the players here. Do I have I know this is hard to see. We're going to identify some of the players that are mentioned here in the verse. So this is a um, family tree of Herod the Great. These are not all of his wives, just a few of them. Herod Antipas is here. And Herodias is here. Now, Herodias was Antipas's niece, the daughter of another uh, one of his half-brothers. She was, uh, had already been married to another one of his half-brothers, Herod Philip I. Now, this is not to be confused with Philip, known as Philip the Tetrarch, also ruling uh, as a client king uh, over regions to the northeast and east of the Lake of Galilee. Now, Herod Antipas was also already married to the daughter of King Aretas, who, who ruled the Nabataean uh, Arabia southeast of the Dead Sea. Now, the, the divorce that, that occurred there led to an armed conflict requiring Roman troops to step in to aid Antipas. Uh, he also enticed Herodias to divorce her husband so that he could marry Herodias. So the players that we're talking about here at Antipas, Herodias, uh, and we'll see a little bit later, her daughter Salome. Now Antipas and Herodias had a very public and adulterous marriage, and it was even considered incestuous by the Old Testament law. And John had no qualms about publicly or to hit their face, calling them out to it. Uh, and these, this was an immoral marriage based on Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16 and 20, verse 21. John had no problems calling out this marriage and their divorce. We don't know for sure how he confronted Herod. It may have just been in public preaching. Um, it may have started with public preaching, and then when John 
was pulled in, he may have told it right to Herod's face. We, we don't know for sure. Mark does tell us in verse 18 that John had told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So there may have been a physical meeting between the two. Now, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and Mark 1, verse 14, tells us that John was in prison sometime after, and possibly shortly after, Jesus' baptism and subsequent temptation in the wilderness. So John, by this point, John has been in prison for a fair amount of time. Verse 19 tells us of the animosity Herodias held against John. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but could not. The expression, held it against him, could be said she had it in for him. She couldn't stand his rebuke and stance against their marriage and took it as an insult against herself and Herod. And she nursed this animosity and hatred against John in her heart. This reminds me of another certain wicked queen of Israel that sought the death of another prophet, Jezebel and Elijah. This hatred was strong enough that had she had the authority to call for John's death, she would have. But John was kept alive because of Herod. Herod feared John. We, he seemed to have some mixed feelings about John, from an odd respect to superstitious fear. Herod knew that John was a just and holy man. He recognized John's moral excellence, and this was part of his reaction not to execute John. Mark gives us two terms describing John. First, just, describing his relations with fellow men as blameless. Then, holy, describing his total separation to God and his work. Herod then protected John to a point. He, he threw him in prison and tried to pacify Herodias that way, but he wasn't ready to kill him. He wasn't ready to execute him. Herod kept John in prison to protect him from the murderous intentions of Herodias. It seemed that Antipas was aware of his wife's anger and intentions toward John. Now, another part of Herod not wanting to kill John was due to the, his fear of the people, thus creating a political reason to keep John alive. Well, Matthew chapter 14, verse 5 tells us that Antipas also desired to kill John, but that he feared the reaction of the people as they thought John as a prophet. So it's possible that when Antipas may have given, given in to Herodias, that it, it, it was not for his own. Excuse, it was possible that Antipas may have given in to Herodias had it not been for his own and the people's viewing of John as a prophet. He may have given in to her had it not been his fear of the people and his view of John. This phrase, and when he heard him, Herod had John brought before him to speak to him on occasions. Um, but these times he seemed to have been confusing for Herod. Now, 
this next part of the verse says, he did many things. This is a little bit of a, of a textual variant. Only the King James and New King James have this reading. He did many things. While there's strong, uh, a strong amount of manuscript evidence for this reading, many, most take it to be a bit of a scribal error. The other reading is he was greatly perplexed. This also has very good evidence and is as well and is seen as the preferred reading. And this would be uh, reading more of them in more of the modern translations. So this idea that he was greatly perplexed, this seems to indicate that Herod was torn by indecision and conflicting feelings toward John. John's voice likely pricked his conscience, but his hedonism and passion for Herodias would counter that. This statement seems to show his moral weakness. Though he was perplexed upon hearing John, he liked to hear him speak. John's voice would have been different and refreshing change to what he would have heard at court. John had an un unpretentious grandeur and a vigor and purity of mind that would have been different from those generally around Herod. Those just putting on airs to please him or trying to win his favor. John wasn't doing any of that. But this complex relationship was not to last. And this brings us to verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the O's and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So in verses 21 through 29, we see John's death. John's death. Herodias finally gets her wish on Herod's birthday. Herod throws himself a great banquet for his birthday. This was probably likely around the main meal of the day, the evening meal. And you see who was there, but no one else but the, the nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. It, it's possible that... that this occurrence happened 
during that armed conflict with his with the the father his f former father-in-law when he divorced his first wife this may be during the time of that armed conflict um, and they may have been down in the in the fortress palace down in that region at this time it's it's possible that that is where John was being held in prison it was down in that uh, fortress So he had, his, he had his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now there is evidence that later Jews would avoid birthday celebrations as pagan and idolatrous. But the Herods followed the Roman practice. Roman birthday celebrations, especially of the upper crust, were often scenes of uninhibited revelry and debauchery. Such was Herod's festival that he invited his guests, the elite of his region, the military leaders, and likely the upper level tax collectors and the group identified in Mark 3, 6 as the Herodians, those that supported both Herod and Rome. Herod's immorality and depravity are glimpsed here when we see that his niece slash stepdaughter came to dance for Herod and his male guests. The ladies would have been celebrating and banqueting someplace else, at least in another chamber. Some historical sources tell us that Herodias's daughter named, was named Salome, and I referenced that earlier. Likely here, an older teenager or maybe 20-something, uh, definitely of marrying age, but to add to the web of immorality of this family, she is reported to have later married Antipas's other half-brother, Philip the Tetrarch, which made Herodias Philip's niece, sister-in-law, and mother-in-law. Now, it seems that the entertainment climaxed with this solo dance. There is an emphasis in this verse that stresses the unusual fact of who is doing the dance. And when Herodias' daughter herself, there's a little bit, it's, the emphasis is brought out a little bit more in the English, but that's a very emphatic way of saying it in, in, the, in the Greek there. That it's stressing the unusual fact of who is doing the dance. Now there's been some, there's a few uh, manuscripts that, that make it seem like Herodias is the daughter doing it, but it, it doesn't work very well. This is a better understanding that it's Herodias's daughter coming to dance. Now this type of dance was very provocative and akin to exotic dancing in some modern nightclubs. These types of dances often were done by professional entertainers who had low moral character. Thus, it makes it almost unprecedented for Salome to performing such a dance. But if we look at the moral character of the family, maybe not. This 
can also speak to the level of hatred Herodias had for John to prostitute her daughter in such a way. The girl's dance having pleased Herod and his guests, Herod offers her a reward. He offers her a reward. He tells her to ask for whatever, and he, he leaves it open to her. Ask for basically anything that she wanted. The comment of up to half my kingdom should be, shouldn't be taken too literally. First, Herod wasn't actually a king. He had no kingdom. He was a vassal king to Rome, governing part of Rome's territory. Second, it seems to temper the previous statement of ask whatever you want. He sets it with a limitation, but it should be understood as an over-exaggeration to show his very generous mood. The girl leaves, leaves Antipas to rejoin her mother in the women's chamber and asks her mother, what should I ask for? It seems that there, wasn't, there, there may not have been a prearranged agreement to, between mother and daughter about what should be asked for, but Herodias likely knew that, that Antipas would vainly promise such a thing, though she couldn't be sure what Herod would promise. So Herodias responds immediately, the head of John the Baptist. Her response seems to be prompt and premeditated. She didn't say the death of John the Baptist. She asked specifically for his head. This would be tangible proof of his death. She wasn't leaving him an option to, yeah, he's dead, and move him to some other prison. She was getting tangible proof that the man she wanted dead was dead. This also shows the vicious temper and determination of Herodias, which again reflects this family. <laughs> Salome promptly returns to Herod and his guests. She likely wanted to make the request before her stepfather had a chance to sober up anymore and change his mind. She tells Herod that she wants John the Baptist's head immediately. And not only that, but she wanted it presented on a platter. The most understand the addition of the platter to have been on Salome's own accord. She did this on her own. The platter would guarantee the complete severing of the head from the body. And it says, and the king was exceedingly sorry. This is a very strong statement showing genuine but shallow sorrow and grief. Neither Mark nor Matthew say that Herod was sorry for John, but sorry that he was stuck in doing something against John, against his will, against his wishes. 
says, yet because of the O's and because of those who sat with him, he did not refuse her. He felt trapped by his honor to fulfill this rash oath. One uh, commentary I was looking at, there was a footnote um, on this section. It said a, a, a missionary to Africa teaching students and, and going through this section, the students were uh, couldn't believe that Herod couldn't talk his way out of this. So the teacher asked him, well, well how would you have responded? They replied, I would have said, John's head isn't part of the half of the kingdom I promised. Now, so they were surprised that they couldn't talk his way out of it. Because even in, in, in some of those cultures, this idea of losing face and shame and honor is very prevalent. And that is part, I think, part of what John is trapping him, or Herod is trapping himself into. He felt trapped by his honor to fulfill this rash oath. Not refusing Salome's request had nothing to do with keeping a promise because of personal integrity, but keeping up appearances. Had he broken this oath, he would have lost face with these important supporters. He was sorry, but fear of embarrassment and social and political support kept him from doing what was right. Immediately, the king sent an executioner. As the governing ruler under Rome, Herod had the authority to exercise the death penalty within his territory. This is why in, when Luke, when Pilate finds, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is from Galilee, send him to Herod. Because then it could be Herod's decision. Herod sends him back. Herod didn't seem to wait. He didn't want to think about it any longer. He ordered John's death by beheading. The executioner presumably... Hopefully, with one stroke of the blade, beheaded John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets and forerunner of Christ. He died having faithfully remained committed to God and his word. He trusted in God's faithfulness, even in prison and into death. The bloody and gruesome gift was then presented to Salome, who then, knowing it was her wish, brought it to her mother. Nothing further is said about the severed head of John the Baptist. Um, the gospel writers cover, it, cover its treatment with a veil, if you will. Uh, one church father suggests that uh, Herodias um, desecrated, mutilated the head uh, but there's, no, there's not a lot of evidence substantiating that. The gospel writers essentially cover it with a veil and move on. However, his, John's disciples came and claimed the body. It says, when his disciples heard of it. This seems to show that none of his disciples were with him at the time. They seem to have had some freedom to visit him. We see this back in, in Luke chapter 7, verses 8 through 23, that some of the 
John had called some of the disciples to him. They were allowed to visit him in prison. And he sent them to Jesus asking, are you the one we're looking for? And Jesus sends a response. There was a level, level of freedom that they could come and visit. Herod apparently allowed them free access to the body, possibly to mitigate his remorse over the affair. Yeah, take, take the body, get buried, take it away. Then his disciples buried him. We weren't, we're not told where his tomb is. There are some historical traditions, but we don't know these for sure. Matthew 14, 12 tells us that John's disciples then went and informed Jesus of John's death. Now, whether that means they were ready to join with Jesus' followers or not, we don't know. It seems evident that at least uh, outside of the Judean region, they seem to operate as a separate group for many years. As Paul runs, among, runs across a group in Ephesus in Acts 19, they didn't hear, they didn't know about Jesus. They only knew of the baptism of John. And under Paul's counsel, they accepted Christ and were rebaptized or properly baptized. Now, where Jesus was when John's disciples reached him and gave him the shocking report, we don't know. Uh, he may have been in or near Capernaum at the time, or even Bethsaida. Uh, as we look further down um, and looking at the parallel accounts, uh, we see that the, the upcoming account is the feeding of the 5,000, and we find that there's a, a deserted place near Bethsaida, according to one of the parallel accounts. So he may have been in that region, in that area. We know that after John's death, Herod was more interested in Jesus's ministry and, and fearing that John had returned to life, as we discussed earlier, that, that John had returned to life to, to haunt him. And Herod sought to meet Jesus. But this meeting never took place until a few hours before Jesus's crucifixion. And this is Luke 23, starting in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was, going and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. The one opportunity he had to meet Jesus, he mocked him and sends him back to Pilate. Well, as we look at, at these verses four, of Mark, verse, uh, chapter 6, 14 to 29, we ask, well, what's the point of this passage? We have this interlude, this interruption between the sending of the 12 in verse 13 and their return in verse 30. For what purpose? I think partly to show the contrast between Herod and John. 
John was a faithful servant to the Lord that knew what his responsibility was and didn't hesitate in his mission. While Herod Antipas was mired in the hedonistic lifestyle of immorality and self-indulgence. Herod was one to give in not only to his desires, but the desires of others. Herod here shows us the life of an unrepentant individual who lives only for himself, out of the fear of people breaking an oath and losing face with political supporters. He allowed himself to be manipulated into ordering John's death. He heard the call to repentance from John a number of times, then finally execute, uh, executed him after being manipulated and outmaneuvered by his scheming and hateful wife. And when he finally met Jesus, he mocked him and turned him away. Herod serves as a warning of unrepentance. John had no fear of man, but of God. The proper fear of God that motivated him to righteousness and, uh, and an upholding of the word of God. This is the mold the disciples were going to fit someday. John serves as a model of faithful service to the Lord. What will you choose? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we were able to come and study your word to see this comparison between these two characters. Father, help us to be more like John the Baptist. Not to have fear of man and, and keeping our keeping our testimony to ourselves, keeping our, the, the news of the gospel to ourselves, but boldly, carefully, and loudly at times proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the, the call to repentance that you have given to us. Father, if there are any here that have not yet come to know you as Savior, Father, I pray that they do not fall in like Herod. That they do not continue a lifestyle of unrepentance, but that they see the need of repentance. That Herod serves as, an, as a warning of an unrepentant life. That has no, in, no good ending, that has no favorable ending, that ends not only in, in ruin in this life, but in an eternity separated from you. So Father, I pray that there be any here that need to accept you as Christ, I pray that they do not wait. Father, I pray that this would also give us the courage to continue to go forward, to continue to proclaim the gospel and to the call to repentance. We thank you for 
your word. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you have given to us. Help us to be good disciples. Help us to be faithful disciples. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.